Earlier this year, I joined a family on their house hunting journey, and it really actually opened up my eyes in a way I wasn't expecting. I was joining a local realtor, Miguel Ceballos, and his clients and their son. Alpedia Sanchez cleans offices, and she has a law degree in Mexico. Her husband, Jaime Salinas, is a framer for a construction company. They were renting at the time in Commerce City. They had wanted to move for years. I don't like Commerce City. You don't like Commerce City? Uh, for refiner refineria? Yeah, the refinery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. You, you worry about uh -huh. pollution? It, yes. They were checking out a place in Thornton, and it would have been somewhat structuring their budget at $350,000, but they had high hopes. Here's their realtor, Miguel. You know, we were coming in here hoping that, you know, there was just a couple of cosmetic issues. But what they found were countless holes in the drywall, destroyed tiles, smoke-stained walls, and signs of major structural repairs in the basement. This might have been level when they built it, and so there might have been some additional settlement. Now, at this point, Alpedia and Jaime had seen 20 homes, and number 21 was obviously not going to be the one for them. Well, this home needs thousands and thousands of dollars of repairs just to be habitable. Miguel expected that a cash investor would snatch it up and flip it for an even higher price instead. It was an example of just how hard it can be to find a home in the most affordable segments of the market in Colorado. And it was thoroughly discouraging. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> every time, every day, yes, I think it's more hard to find something. Now, the market has turned somewhat in the months since I did this interview, but the issue is not going away. Housing is something we've heard about over and over from voters for years. And this year, for really the first time ever, they have an opportunity to vote about it on the statewide level. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about politics, policy, and right now the 2022 elections. I'm Andrew Kenny, and I'm about to turn hosting duties over to my colleague, Benta Berkland. Thanks, Andy. So you just said that this year could be one of the most important elections ever for housing in Colorado. Yeah. So why is that? And what could really change for, for families that are searching for a house they can actually afford? Well, first of all, the family we just heard from is far from alone. I, I know it gets like old hearing about how bad the housing market's been, mm -hmm. but the market here in Colorado has gone from, I would say, like boiling to almost exploding at times. Median home prices are up 34% compared to 2018. Rents have seen a similar increase. Wow. Right now, over the last couple months, the market's kind of hitting the brakes a little bit uh, with all the changes in interest rates and stuff, but it remains really, really tough to find a place to buy or afford a place to rent in this state. We've been out the last few months talking to people about the issues they care about. Mm -hmm. And pretty much from all of the voters we've talked to, cost of living is the top issue. Yeah. And housing is obviously one of the biggest parts of that. It's not necessarily the topic that's in all the ads and flyers you're starting to see every day. I, I don't think I've seen anything in my mailbox about housing in particular, but it is going to be on your ballot when that shows up in your mailbox, because we've got one very big ballot measure and one very notable political candidate that are both starting to talk about housing in a new way, at least for Colorado, this year. So, Andy, I know you've been looking into a lot of this. Mm -hmm. And in this episode of Purplish, we're going to talk about that ballot measure, what it tries to do, what are some of the concerns people have about it, and how the topic of housing overall is going to play in some of the key statewide political races. 
Yeah, and the big picture takeaway from it all is that Colorado's government and leaders, I can tell you now, are trying to envision a state where families like the Sanchez Salinas's can actually afford to live. And they're approaching some big decisions. There's some big contrasts, too, about how they might achieve that. This housing initiative is Proposition 123. That's what people will see on their ballots. The title is Dedicate State Income Tax Revenue for Affordable Housing. Yep. So it sounds kind of straightforward, but yet very complicated. (laughs) So um, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. Anything on a Colorado ballot involving tax revenue is going to get complicated. Mm -hmm. The first notable thing, though, I want to say is that uh, as far as I know, we've never really seen anything like this in Colorado. Here's Mike Johnston, former state legislator who is heading up the campaign. We think this is the first time housing's ever been on the ballot statewide in Colorado. And we know it's a critical moment for us to make sure that teachers and nurses and firefighters have places to live in our communities. And so what what people are seeing when they're pulling out their ballot or they have their blue book guide, it says that this initiative would spend income taxes on affordable housing. How does that work? All right. You asked. The first thing to know is that it doesn't actually directly increase your taxes. Your tax rate's not going to go up if this is approved. What it does, though, is it requires the state to spend some of the money it's already collecting uh, in the amount of hundreds of millions of dollars per year on different types of various housing programs. And so what type of programs does it list exactly where it would go? It does, although it remains to be seen exactly how some of this stuff will work out in the real world. But it covers the gamut from, you know, lots of money for your kind of traditional affordable housing programs, which is mostly rental buildings with subsidized rent, as well as programs directly for homelessness. But then it also tries to broaden the reach of the state's housing effort with some stuff uh, that would, you know, for example, help families that are trying to buy their first homes. So like the the family we had talked about at the top of this episode. Yeah, they could get down payment assistance, for example. Then there's also these kind of indirect strategies that are supposed to just make it easier to build more affordable housing and more housing in general. That would be stuff like subsidizing these factories that put together modular housing, which is quicker and cheaper to build, or encouraging cities to streamline their permitting process and just make it easier to build affordable housing in particular and also housing of all sorts. I think this will be the most innovative approach to affordable housing in the country. We had a lot of national interest from people who want to see this replicate in other states because it allows us to both set ambitious targets for affordable housing, give local governments control over how to get there, and address the entire continuum of need from those who are unhoused up to rentals, up to home ownership. All right, cool. You got all that right? Yeah, of course. No problem. I'm ready to vote now. But I, I think it's complicated. How does this initiative kind of interact with what the state's already done. More, 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 more is what it does. This would really raise the baseline of what the state spends every year up to about like $270 million in the first full year, it's estimated. That's anywhere from tripling to even quintupling what the state was spending on housing before the pandemic. And it's really remarkable when you put it in context and go, you know, 10 years back, it's like many, many times over what the state was spending back in the 2010s. So just fair to say that this housing issue wasn't a state priority mm-hmm. about a decade ago just b- because there wasn't an issue to this degree. Yeah, and we'll get more into this later, but it was it really fell to the cities until very recently. So now we're seeing through this and other measures, states getting involved. 
Andy, you said this isn't a tax increase. So that means we don't have new money coming into the state that will be allocated for housing. So is this going to take money away from other priorities? Oh, it's complicated. Come on, it's Colorado. Um, What this measure tries to do is I've been calling it like a magic trick, trying to come up with a bunch of money, like you're saying, without actually increasing taxes. How do you do that? I'm sure a lot of people would like to know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the truth is you never get free money unless you're the federal government. And even that comes to the questions. But the first big thing that this does is um, it doesn't raise taxes, but it takes money out of, you ready for this, out of the tax refunds that Colorado taxpayers often get or sometimes get. That's when the state collects more money than it's allowed to Mm -hmm. and refunds some of that money to residents. I think a lot of people may be familiar with it. Yep. Uh, $750. A lot of people receive those checks over the summer, fall. That's right. So if you can imagine, there's that big pool of money that is above and beyond what the state can collect, and they're having to give that back as refunds normally. For example, next year, it's expected to be more than $2 billion of refunds. Now, under this measure, though, the state would get to go to that pool of billions of dollars that's going to get refunded, and before the checks get written, they get to scoop in there and take out the $270 million for housing. So that money doesn't then get refunded. It reduces the size of the refund and instead dedicates that refund money to housing. I feel like over the years, we've seen a variety of groups unsuccessfully try to take some of this excess Tabor money and use it for other things. Well, it's hard. People like refunds. I don't think anybody like is really that upset when 750 bucks shows up in their mailbox. Well, you know, Democrats are running on those refund checks right now. That's right. The Colorado cashback. They've branded it. And as you can guess, a lot of conservatives are criticizing this measure as a tax hike in disguise, because even if you're not paying more on the front end, the government is keeping more of your money, less money for you, more money for the government. And then we're also hearing, this is interesting, concerns from Democrats, Democrats who work on the budget, who may agree that this is an important priority, that we should spend this money on housing, but they're worried about what happens in the years that we don't have Tabor refunds. Where does the money come from then? That's right. There are a lot of years where the state is not growing Mm -hmm. by a significant amount and is nowhere near this what's called Tabor cap. So refunds aren't going out. That is a really good point. What happens when there isn't the money there? What happens if this proposition passes? They have to then, I guess in theory, go get this affordable housing money from the pool of money that pays for everything else. It's no longer basically free money to the government that they were going to lose anyway. Now it's competing with education and roads and schools. Hmm. Just the state budget. It's going to come out of the general state budget. That's right. And to put things in perspective, you know, $270 million a year, that's like maybe half what it costs to run the whole state court system. So not small change in the state budget. No, no, not too small. Um, And there's also a second criticism we've heard from lawmakers who work on the budget, which is that when you lock spending rules into the state budget, there can be unintended consequences where if we look back uh, in the 2000s, I think it was voters in the state did something similar with education funding, passed this constitutional amendment and says that the state has to increase school spending by a certain amount of money per year. But, you know, then when times got bad, the legislature just couldn't afford to do it and ended up kind of ignoring the whole rule. So there's a a question of whether this would actually work in practice. We hear a lot of discussions about that at the state capitol when very complex policy is kind of locked in at a state ballot level. Uh 
there's a lot less fluidity and flexibility when the dynamics of the economy and a whole host of things change. You know, that's what lawmakers are at the Capitol to, to deal with are those policy questions. So this, I can see that that would be a strong criticism from folks who are concerned about this. Well, this is what happens when you try to do the magic trick. There's always side effects. Yeah, exactly. Well, all this finance aside and the budget magic tricks and everything, Uh what do you think the odds are that this will actually pass this November? I don't know, because at first I thought, what are they doing? Why are they running this in a midterm election? Housing seems like more of a liberal priority, at least in my mind, or at least big infrastructure spending does. And Republicans are supposed to do relatively well this year as a more conservative electorate in the midterms. And also, I mean, conservatives are very strong supporters of Tabor. Right. But Democrats like Governor Jared Polis are running on giving refund checks, Tabor refund checks to voters this cycle. Yeah. Other Democrats are campaigning on this right now. Yeah. So tough year to kind of go against Tabor refunds. But when I asked Mike Johnston, uh, again, who's involved with the campaign, he contended that this is really reaching a crisis point and that housing is not a partisan issue right now. The the cry from Coloradans is deafening on the importance of this issue. I mean, it now is five times more urgent of an issue for voters than education is right now. We know that we've seen a huge set of crisis through the pandemic, but this cost of living issue is the one that is crippling Coloradans and it is in the way of every opportunity people have. And he's referring there to some polling they'd done, I think through the Colorado Health Foundation that found Again, the cost of living and affordable housing were way up there as the top concerns, and which we, we also found. So maybe he has a point. Maybe people will see this and be concerned about housing and decide to go for it. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I think he's 100% right that voters are worried about housing and affordability. Mm-hmm. But the question is, you know, there's a myriad of, of ways to address that. And is this going to be the way people feel is most appropriate to address this. Using something like a proposition to kind of tie the hand of state lawmakers and the government when it comes to spending, and like I mentioned earlier, having that flexibility. And if you look at recent elections, how frequently ballot measures fail, Mm -hmm. especially when it's complicated, it may suggest that voters are, are getting more cautious. On the other hand, though, if we look back just two years to 2020, Do you remember the paid family leave initiative? That was a very costly initiative, at least relative to some other proposals in the billions. It comes with a fee that's going to hit most workers for a percentage of their income. And yet it passed with flying colors. And I think that could be similar to this, where paid family leave was an issue affecting tons and tons of people across Colorado. People wanted to see it addressed. And here comes this proposal that offers a way to do it. And that also, I should add, neither of them have the language that says, oh, shall taxes be increased by $100 billion? Instead, they were both written on the ballot in a way that de-emphasized the cost or or didn't put it front and center, at least. Yeah, I see what you're saying, although I think there's obviously uncertainty on this. But paid family leave, from my perspective, was more straightforward, Hmm. a more linear, like, here's the cost, here's what you're paying, and here's what you're going to get. People could see a direct benefit, whereas they might not be so sure. Well, I mean, when you're talking about Tabor refund checks and rebates and then state budget, I mean, there's just so many moving parts to this. It's a really interesting question. I'm just not sure. Uh, I went out door knocking with some campaign members the other day, and they definitely met lots of people who 
yeah, we're interested in housing as an issue, wanted to see something done. And they also got lots of tough questions from some voters about, well, how is this going to work? How does this affect taxes and Tabor? So we'll see just uh, how the Colorado electorate feels about this. All right, just to summarize, this ballot proposal is a significant increase in funding. Uh, It's the kind of thing that historically hasn't passed at the polls in Colorado, standing up big new government spending. But voters have gone for some other pretty ambitious funding changes, like implementing paid family leave, as long as they don't directly increase taxes. So will voters take a bite and, and try to look at this as a solution to one of the state's biggest problems? You tell me. So far in this episode, we have covered the big direct choice voters will get when it comes to housing this fall, Mm -hmm. whether to say yes or no to Proposition 123 and put a a lot of additional money into affordable housing. Of course, this is also an election where voters are choosing who will lead Colorado for the next four years from U.S. Senate, governor, other statewide races, state legislature. And Andy, Mm -hmm. you've been reporting on how various candidates are talking about housing, and specifically the gubernatorial candidates. Yeah, yeah. And the first thing is they're not necessarily rushing out to talk about it. You're not going to necessarily, again, see it in the ads, not that big on the websites or on their debates. But when I asked both Heidi Ganahl and Jared Polis, the two candidates for governor, Jared Polis being the sitting governor, have said that housing is really important, and they were pretty eager to talk about it. So it's important They're not necessarily campaigning on it. Is it just it's not the most kind of enticing issue that draws people in? Yeah, I'm not sure if they they maybe see crime or abortion as a little more visceral and understandable. Housing is what I would call high hanging fruit, like a coconut, Mm. you know, like at the top of the tree, because it's it's hard to explain. It's technical um, and it's not clear that anybody's really got a solution or a handle on it. Andy, I just have to say that comparing housing to a coconut is not the analogy I was expecting. It's a tough nut to crack. (laughs) (laughs) Coconut and nut. All right. So um, to summarize it, you know, Heidi Ganahl, the Republican, had some broad ideas, I would say, about, you know, encouraging cities to allow more development and helping them innovate. She didn't have too detailed of a policy plan on this. Then Jared Polis, when we asked him about it on a couple of occasions, kind of made it seem like it was a secret centerpiece almost of his Mm. platform for a second term, saying it would be one of the top focuses and that we need to start dealing now with these housing problems. Mm -hmm. It's like growth is a good thing for a state, but also has downsides too. Yeah. He came on Colorado Matters. And like you're saying, he kind of gave himself credit for creating the growth that led to the problem. Well, look, I I can't help it if we've made Colorado an even more amazing place to live and the secret's out. And the truth is we have with preschool and kindergarten, with uh, saving people money. We have people from, you know, across the country and across the world who say, look, Governor Polis' success story in Colorado is something we want to be a part of. And that creates its own challenges like housing. Well, that's certainly one way to put it. Yep. Look at Governor Polis's success story, as well as uh, not to mention 40 years of growth before Polis came into office as well. So what does Polis say he would do? What could he do, given that housing is sort of a local issue, not necessarily a state issue? Uh, Polis has said that uh, our current approach to development and to affordable housing uh, is broken. He's used that word. And he's saying that the big problem is that we've just not built enough housing of all types and especially regular market rate dense housing to keep up with the population growth. 
And so he wants Colorado to embrace some of the ideas that you might hear from uh, people called Yimbies, hmm. you know, the yes in my backyarders. Oh. Polis is talking about how to just build more housing in general. So I think we need the courage of our convictions and we need to act boldly and we need to act now and sooner or else we'll be acting after the fact. Now, finally, states like California and Oregon are looking at housing and doing something about it. And you see some of the measures they're doing around accessory dwelling units and density around transit corridors. And Colorado can do that now under our leadership, or we can simply step aside, avoid conflict, wait 10 years and do it after homes cost a million dollars right here in Colorado. So let's say Polis wins re-election. Mm-hmm. He implements whatever plan he wants to implement. How, how would that impact the places where Coloradans live? You know, what would change? Well, he said that he wants to play a much bigger role in encouraging cities to have that kind of dense development around transit that he wants to see. He hasn't said exactly how we'll do that. But I would look at, you know, suburbs like Lakewood and Golden where they have light rail lines, Mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily have like a lot of density around those light rail lines. And actually both of those cities have annual growth caps limiting how much can be built. Mm -hmm. And I think that Polis would want to start finding ways to push those cities to allow density. I'm not sure exactly how he would do it. The other thing that he said is that he doesn't really want to see more exurbs, which is like the, you know, the suburbs of the suburbs, the spread out. Mm-hmm. single family developments. Uh, I would think of a place like Franktown or Castle Rock or a lot of Douglas County where there's just seas of single family homes built in the last decade, thousands of them. Um, I'm not sure what he would do there either, but could he try to, for example, influence water policy to make it harder to grow out rather than up? Well, I've been covering the state capital for a while now, and I, I know that cities and counties just have so much power yeah. at the state house, And they generally try to keep state lawmakers out of their business. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like Polis maybe directly would, would challenge that. Yeah, that does seem to be what he's saying. To your point, historically, almost everything to do with development and growth has been controlled at the city level via the zoning code. And Polis is saying, well, maybe the state should have a louder voice or stronger role in that conversation. And doing that would mean moving into the decisions that the local governments have historically gotten to make. Well, look, local communities decide what gets built where, but there's a lot of levers the state have, both on the carrot and the stick side, about making sure that we're doing this in a thoughtful, interjurisdictional manner. Because the truth is, I'm a strong supporter of local control, but where the decisions of one community affect the quality of life in a neighboring community or community across town, that's where we really need to look at this as an interjurisdictional and statewide manner. And housing fits squarely into that category. So what, what does Polis want the state to do? But you heard him use the words carrot and stick, Mm -hmm. those two classic government metaphors. So carrot would be incentives, grants, money for cities with pro-density policies, encourage them. And then he mentioned the sticks, which you could imagine would be penalties or mandates. And again, has avoided saying exactly what kind of stick he might have in his back pocket. What's been the response from local governments, I imagine, not thrilled Yeah, we uh, heard from the Colorado Municipal League's head, Kevin Balmer, about this. Uh, He tweeted, there are so many things that are wrong here that a full response via Twitter is not possible. The governor of Colorado and the legislature have roles to play. Acting like a mayor and a city council isn't one of them. And that was in response to some of Polis' earlier comments along these lines. Mm. And otherwise, you know, this does split in kind of weird ways. You'll find Republicans and Democrats who will oppose this because they support local control They know that their population in their city might kind of freak out if you start encouraging density. 
And you'll find Republicans and Democrats who support it because they believe in free enterprise or they believe that we should just build more housing. I think uh, unlike some of the big issues we cover at the Capitol, this isn't one where there's the clearly defined partisan lines. Yeah. There's some crossover like you were talking about. So for Polis and his Republican opponent, Heidi Ganahl, have you noticed that as well? Yeah. That they're not on these clearly opposite sides of this housing issue? Yeah. And that's why I find this topic so interesting is that people don't always know what ideological corner they need to run to when you talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. So they tend to engage with it. Ganahl is also interested in dense, efficient housing. She brought up the idea that sometimes, uh, like Polo says, city rules, zoning policies can make it hard to build dense, efficient housing. But, uh, you know, I noticed that how she talks about local governments and local control does sound different from Polis. It's really up to the local municipalities to manage their growth. Um, but I can partner with them as a governor and incentivize them to look at old malls or big retail developments and figure out if we can rezone it to create new, cool, innovative housing um, or to create tiny home villages or to look at, um, you know, a model like Europe has where the, the units are much smaller, more efficient, like community housing. She's talking more about like a coach role. She'll be there to help cities do this if they want. Polis seems to be pushing harder on it, much firmer, uh, somewhat more detailed in his plans. So we've got the gubernatorial candidates not campaigning on housing, but it's a big issue. They realize it's a top priority for so many voters, cost of living. Then we have the first ever statewide ballot question on housing, Initiative 123. Have these two candidates, Ganahl Polis, taken a position on that ballot initiative? Do they support it? No, not that I've seen. They've not explicitly either of them endorsed or opposed this. And maybe let's uh, close out this section by just noting that, you know, these are kind of two different approaches. The gubernatorial candidates are talking about how to encourage housing development in general, whether it's mm -hmm. private, public, or somewhere in between. And the Proposition 123 is much more focused on traditional affordable housing, subsidized affordable housing. So, uh, you know, one is build more housing in general. One is build more affordable housing specifically. Uh, not necessarily contradictory ideas, but two different approaches that we're seeing on the ballot here. Okay, so when you put all of this together, ballot initiatives, statewide candidates, governor's race, what does this year actually mean for housing in Colorado? Well, I can't say it enough times again. This is the first time we'll see housing on the ballot statewide, which will give us a really much better sense of what the electorate thinks of a big new investment in affordable housing. Mm -hmm. It's still popping up as a topic on local ballots as well. We haven't even discussed that. And, you know, we're also hearing much more ambitious plans than usual in the governor's race, especially from Polis. So a big moment, but also not one that I don't think anybody expects is going to solve the housing shortage one way or another, because this is just right. a really hard issue for government because it's linked to all kinds of national and economic factors that are outside of the state's control. So leaving this big picture behind a little bit, um, I did have one more question, and I'm curious what happened to the family you introduced us to at the, the beginning of this episode? Did they ever find a home? Well, I just recently checked in with the realtor to find out the answer to that. Hey, Andy, how's it going? And I can tell you that after looking at 30 houses and drawing up 17 bids, Ooh. they found a place in Aurora for $400,000. Yeah, how did they react? How did they feel after all that? Well, extremely relieved, especially because they, they were starting to believe that the whole deal was going to fall apart. 
you know, after being let down deal after deal after deal because um, we kept losing to people with a bigger appraisal gap um, and just people who offered more, they were, they were really excited to be able to finally get into their first home. And now their realtor, again, his name is Miguel Ceballos, said that the market has eased up some. There's not as much competition. Sellers are making more concessions. But it's still really tough. I mean, you said their budget was 350 and they had to go up to 400 So, And I think they could afford it. But with interest rates going up, those costs continue to climb. It's not easy right now. It may be easier to secure the contract on the home. But there's so little stock remaining for affordable, accessible houses and one way or another, Miguel said that policymakers really need to get serious about this. You know, state lawmakers and city council members and mayors across the front range really have to start thinking about how to think about affordable housing in a different way. And for now, they are at least talking about it in a different way. This November will show uh, how far they are willing to go toward action, the electorate and politicians alike. That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. This episode was produced by Megan Verley and Shane Rumsey, and I had some reporting help from Paolo Shalsada. We'll be back in your podcast feeds next week. So if you're not already a subscriber, be sure to sign up and make sure you don't miss it. If you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends. This is Purplish from CPR News.